right, we're just calling it an audible. You got to be flexible around here. Amen. I'm going to get you to go ahead and stand up. We got work to do. It's so uh, good to be with you this morning. I always look forward to being able to bring you the word, even though it almost makes me nauseous the night before. <laughs> but I've done the work, and I trust the Lord. So here we are. First uh, Corinthians chapter 12, beginning with verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in the one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of the one spirit. Indeed, the one body does not consist of one member, but many If the foot would say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear would say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many members, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again to the head, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, The members of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and those members of the body that we think are less honorable, we clothe with greater honor, and our less respectable members are treated with greater respect, whereas our more respectable members do not need this. But God has so arranged the body, giving the greater honor to the inferior member, that there may be no dissension, no dissension, Within the body, but the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, we all suffer together with it. And if one member is honored, we all rejoice together with it. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then deeds of power, then gifts of healing forms of assistance, forms of leadership, various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? But strive for the greater gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Wow, that was a mouthful. And we're supposed to make one sermon out of that. Uh, That indeed uh, is the challenge. This is week four of our continued series on unity in the church. And I continued in uh, 1 Corinthians as uh, Pastor Elizabeth started, I think, either last week or the week before. We are, um, we're not privileged to have the letter that prompted this response by Paul. But the leaders in this newly established church in, in Corinth um, had written to Paul seeking his counsel and instruction on how to address some of the issues that were causing them conflict. 
uh, and that seemed to be damaging the community, this newfound community of faith. Pastor Elizabeth mentioned last week that Paul addresses 15 different issues in this letter, this first letter to uh, the church. And the sources of conflict ranged from worship protocols to lawsuits to sexual ethics. But the thing that appeared to be disturbing him the most was division in the church around the leadership. It took him only 10 verses in the first chapter to address the report that he had received about members choosing sides around their preferred teacher. The believers were publicly identifying with their favorite preacher and were taking great pride in it. I belong to Paul, one would say, or I am of Apollos. Cephas is the man. And they started choosing up sides. In recent weeks, as, as we have discussed the current situation in the United Methodist Church, I've become more aware and maybe even a little hypersensitive to the possibility that as a preacher, something that I say or a sermon that I preach may someday, if not already, cause someone to leave the church, to leave this church, or to walk away from the faith completely. It is likely to happen at some point in my ministry. And I know this because I've been in the church practically my entire life and I have seen it time and time again. I've heard folks say, I can't be a part of a church where the preacher doesn't think like I do. Or the preacher and I, we just don't see eye to eye. Or, or he or she is too conservative or progressive for my taste. I'm going church shopping. What appears to be of even greater concern are those who don't believe what I believe. Time and time again, folks have left the building, left the denomination, left the church in disagreement over the message or an interpretation of Scripture. And so I do want to thank you that you have been willing to endure as I continue to study and develop my understanding of Scripture and, and my craft as a preacher. I like to think that you have ex extra patience with me since I am one of yours. And you all know I am uh, perpetually in school. And I'm thankful for the grace that you have extended to not fill my email box with rebuttals on Monday. Although it has happened, let me just say. I'm most especially grateful for your continued friendship when we are not of the same opinion or our interpretation departs from one another. I'm hopeful that our mutual love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus can hold us together in relationship despite our differences. 
This is the foundation of Paul's counsel in his writing to the Corinthians. That they not be divided by their personal preferences, but that they find unity in Christ. Less than 25 years after Jesus' ascension, the church was already, already putting the messenger of the gospel ahead of the message and of Christ. And Paul would have none of it. Was Paul crucified for you, he asked? Were you baptized in the name of Apollos? Has Christ been divided? Of course not. But part of the problem was that Apollos was a great scholar, a famous debater, and a renowned orator. He used eloquent words with strong rhetorical skills and argued reasonably and intellectually for the gospel. And those who came to Christ through his preaching were of a higher social standing. He had an elitist class following. And then Peter, who was a fisherman, and Paul, who was a scholar in Jewish law, they also had their own following, but it was primarily the lower classes. Like Jesus, they were reaching the oppressed. Those out on the margins of society were finding community in this place called the church. The community was beginning to be quite diverse. And each group brought with them different life experiences, different backgrounds, different understanding of what this new way meant for them and, and different needs. In the first century, Corinth was a remarkable place. Positioned on a peninsula that joined the two masses of land that make up Greece with the Aegean Sea on one side and the Mediterranean on the other. At one point, the, the two bodies of water were only separated by about nine miles of land. And so the Roman government had built a road that would allow cargo to be lifted out of one ship in one sea and transported the nine miles and put into a vessel on the other side and off into the Mediterranean it goes. That path is still there, it has been dredged and is now a canal. This made Corinth an incredible center for commerce. The people were diverse and there, were, there was wealth and there was diversity. About 50% of the population barely existed barely above the level of sustenance. They could feed themselves and take care of themselves. And, and then they were bracketed by 25% on either side, uh, uh, above them and, and both below them. It was a population mostly of Greeks, uh, but also included a wide range of non-Greeks, and including a significant population of Jews. And the society was built on this hierarchical system that was as known as a patron-client relationship where those of power and status would use the underlings and their favors and their service and their loyalty to maintain power and also to raise them up in society so that they would have 
leverage. At the heart of the conflict Paul was addressing was the fact that the community inside the church was beginning to look like the society outside of the church. They were having difficulty learning how to live together. And and our text for today is Paul's attempt to show them the way to reframe this life in this uh, melting pot, this new melting pot called the church, where the people are different. I've studied and wrestled with this text for some time now, and, and I believe that there are two messages at work here, or I should say at least two. It's a lot of material, and so it can, it can go a lot of different ways. But framed by two sections on spiritual gifts, Paul introduces the analogy of the human body to describe how it is that such a diverse group of folks can come together and live and function as a cohesive unit. The body is made up of a variety of members and each with unique gifts given by the Spirit. Every part is important. If any part is in pain, the whole body suffers. The whole body is not healthy unless the individual parts are healthy and functioning properly. And, and as sermons go, that's sort of the layup, the, the, uh, the easy, the low-hanging fruit, as it were. Followers of Christ have been gifted in unique ways to contribute to the body of the church, the body of Christ, the church. It is the text that preachers use to get you to engage in the community, to discover your spiritual gifts and to serve the community as we together serve the world and fulfill the mission of the church. We talk about it over in the new members class. We provide a a place on our website where you can do a spiritual gifts assessment and find out how God has uniquely gifted you for this purpose. And as you might can imagine, in a church this size, there are a lot of moving parts, and so it takes a lot of people with individual uh, and unique gifts. You might have noticed when I asked you to be seated, you didn't fall onto the floor. Someone set up the chairs. These folks that give their gifts of time and, and ministry to lead us in worship, the lights came on, the building was unlocked and warm, There are hundreds of moving parts to a church, to a body of Christ. And I do encourage you to seek and discover your spiritual gifts. And and, and I will say that they are often not your vocational skills. I mean, I've seen, I, I know an HR director who was an amazing kindergarten Sunday school teacher. And then we have engineers who serve the poor and the homeless faithfully. And I once uh, knew a banker who learned to play the guitar just to be able to lead the congregation in worship. Spiritual gifts are given by the Spirit for the purpose of building up the church. Every person is important. Every person has a spiritual gift and no gift is superior when they all come together to fulfill the mission. And that's the sermon I didn't want to preach. I think there's something better here. And, and so I, what I want to do is I want to take a, 
a, a little closer look at what I think is the richer interpretation. In the context and context matters of first century Corinth, being part of a body had a much different had much different implications. Paul's analogy was a common one. Greek philosophers and ancient writers were already using this illustration to explain how the society was to function. Political leaders and imperial rulers, war strategists, all use similar language for a variety of purposes, much of which would now sound to us like oppression or exploitation of the lower classes. The analogy of society as a human body explained the rationale of the class system in which the powerful ruling class always remained at the top as the head and the servants and the slaves always remained at the bottom, subservient to the elite. Their logic explained that when the lower classes perform their role, the whole society was better off. It gives credence to the hierarchical, political, social, and economic systems of governments and and institutions. And the result is a highly competitive society that when everyone is working hard to climb this ladder, it benefits the power brokers and the elite and those who retain power. But the problem with a society built on competition like this is that competition needs a rival, competitors. They, they need a rival. Where would the, the Red Sox be without the Yankees, Duke or Carolina, right? How would, how would Republicans be defined if it weren't for the uh, Democrats or progressives over and against conservatives, Competitors are defined by language of winners and losers, which is great for sports, but not so much for a society and and certainly not for a church. A society built on competition and survival of the fittest exposes the vulnerability of the weak and promotes bias and rewards favoritism and takes advantage takes away advantage from the lower class the christian church at corinth was having a difficulty navigating this territory and learning how to live as a unified entity when the dominant culture began to find its way into the faith community They were experiencing what is reflected in the old adage that it was easier to get the Hebrews out of Egypt than it was to get Egypt out of the Hebrews. We are creatures of habit. We learn to survive in certain ways. In Paul's hands, this common analogy 
when used as a description of the church, the body of Christ, with its various parts and gifts, is continuing Jesus' challenge to the status quo. He's picking up right where Jesus left off. It's subversive. The kingdom of God where, where all are welcome and every person has value calls for something different than the world has to offer. It calls for unity rooted in love. The love of God, the love of Christ, the love of neighbor and genuine care and concern for each other especially those with the greatest needs. There is no place for competition in the church. There must be no winners and losers. Everyone is to be about the common good. After three years of tearing down the walls built up by the culture, Jesus' act of washing the feet of the disciples served as a neutralizer. No longer was there a master-slave order. Jesus said to his disciples, Do you know what I have done for you? I no longer call you servants, but friends. How else could Jesus convince a zealot a fierce competitor of the Roman Empire, to find community at the table with a tax collector, one who worked for said empire. You have undoubtedly heard that the America seems to be more divided than ever, that the offensive rhetoric of Washington has found its way through social media and our neighborhoods, and it seems to be at an all-time high. But I would challenge that just a bit and suggest that America has been divided for almost from almost at the beginning as more and more people of different cultures have found their way from all over the world and then tried to figure out how to live together. The joining together of different cultures brings with it the possibility of tension, conflict, division, withdrawal, and separation. And we know that the church is not immune to it. Political ideology, theology, church doctrine often serve as catalysts for tension in the church. But I must say that conflict in the church is, of course, nothing new. And it has happened over issues of far less importance. I heard the story of a a parishioner who left the church. They had been a member of their entire life because at some point as they were growing, the church council decided to hire a part-time choir director. Come on, y'all. Are you with me? Is that not hilarious? It's true. And most pastors and staff members could write a book on the silly things that us church folks fight about. Stop by my office sometime. We'll have a chat. 
This is our fourth sermon in the series on the topic of unity in the church. And, and we think it was good preparation. Pastor Elizabeth will wrap it up next week just before the general conference. But we think it was a good way to prepare us to prepare our hearts and our minds for whatever it is that's going to happen in a couple of weeks. The church is, uh, as you have heard, strongly divided, and, and some have insisted that the only solution is a split. It is, after all, the pattern of behavior in the Christian church dating back to the great schism of 1054 and continuing through the Reformation of the 1500s. The church has split so many times now, it, would, it wouldn't surprise me if anyone even noticed, frankly. But the real problem with the conflict that results in separation is that it damages our witness to the world of who Christ is and, and who Jesus is, as one scholar says, as the great includer. Jesus is always looking for who's missing and welcoming them in, not putting up barriers and locking doors. The world is watching and we will either confirm what they already suspect or surprise them by our strength to remain together even as we disagree. The truth is that the institution of the church makes dozens of decisions every four years when we gather for general conference, and most of them draw very little attention. The church has an official position on every issue known to man, most of which you may not even agree with, but you're not aware of, because frankly what they do is really not all that exciting most of the time. But we choose to be Methodists here, United Methodists here, because we found a, a, a home here. We found community. We've, we found a place where we were invited into fellowship and love for the express purpose of worshiping and studying and serving God. And, and I've appreciated the conversations that we've had in preparation for the conference and I'm hopeful that you will not leave if the decision does not go the way that you prefer, even though some of you has, have said as much. We are in this together. Paul concludes this chapter with the statement, And yet I will show you the most excellent way. It is lead-in into chapter 13 that Elizabeth will preach next week. And it is the most quoted passage of all his letters. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is gentle. Love is not self-serving. It does not hold grudges. Paul and Jesus teach us that the way through our differences is our ability to love one another as Christ has loved us. Jesus calls us, the body of Christ, the church, to a special kind of oneness. Oneness that is not singleness or, or separateness or, or where we stand all in agreement and nod and gather with like-mindedness. The mind of Christ, maybe. Oneness 
that is united by one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. As our liturgy over the sacraments of Eucharist say, may we choose to be one with Christ, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world until Christ comes in final victory and we feast at his heavenly banquet together. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.